Hello, welcome to Interface, the podcast for teachers and educators all about online life for children and young people and what you need to know to best support them. Interface is from Southwest Grid for Learning, one of three organisations that make up the UK's Safer Internet Centre. With you this time are myself, Jess Macbeth, and I'm very pleased to say I'm joined by Princess Lowell, one of our brilliant young co-hosts. Princess, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Always fun to be here. I know, I know. And this one is an amazing episode, right? This is our March episode. So it's hitting your podcast feed in time for International Women's Day. So we are looking particularly at the experience of being a girl or woman online. We've got a fantastic expert guest that we'll bring in in just a minute. But Princess, what's your experience of this? What are the particular issues that you think teachers and educators need to be aware of about girls and women's experiences online? So my favourite thing that we kind of discussed today was actually about body image um, because something that I struggled with when I was little. So it was really nice to kind of discuss that and talking about the social influence and people that we can follow to get the correct information. Yeah, it was, I mean, it is a really interesting uh, conversation and it does make you personally reflect. I was reflecting about my own experiences, but also my experiences of being a parent, you know, as well as kind of my professional role too. So mountains to think about. As always, we're going to give you our three key takeaways from the conversation towards the end of the podcast as well. So don't forget to listen uh, for that. And there are lots more resources and tools for educators online at swgfl.org.uk. And the link is in the series show notes. But now let's bring in our brilliant expert guest. Great. I'm looking forward to this one. I'm Natasha Devon. I'm a campaigner, author and broadcaster. Most of my work is in schools and colleges here in the UK and it involves delivering talks but also conducting research with 14 to 18 year olds on mental health and related issues like body image. So it involves going into schools and colleges about three a week on average, mainly here in the UK. And I deliver talks on things like exam stress, um, social media, body image, navigating transitions is a big part of the work. So particularly the move to university from, from sixth form or college. And then I also do focus groups with teenagers. The idea behind that is that I keep it as relevant as possible to the concerns that they have. Fantastic. And you've got a book out soon as well. Is that covering all of those kind of issues? So the book that I've got coming out in May is called Clicks and it's about technology and social media for teenagers. And I wrote it because in the focus groups, lots of teenagers were saying the education that we have on this topic is quite straightforwardly demonizing social media. And their point of view was, look, it's it's part of how we live our lives. We're digital citizens. And what we need is some practical advice on how to navigate this world rather than just being told how dangerous it is all the time and how life was better before it, because that genie's not going back in the bottle. So I'm trying to write it from a kind of non-judgmental place, but also from the point of view of being a millennial. So I remember life before tech and social media, certainly before smartphones, but when it came along, I was young enough that I found it really fun and exciting and embraced it and 
enthusiastically hold myself into that world. And and when my generation die, no one will ever have that perspective ever again. So I thought I, I should probably commit it to paper. Bringing it to body image, because actually this episode of the podcast is going to be premiering for the International Women's Day of 2023. Um, and the theme is all about embracing equity. And I wanted to ask about when I was younger, the people that I was looking to as a role model, I wasn't entirely sure if I'm if I was getting the correct use out of them or information. So when looking at role models online, what are the type of role models you suggest for young people to look out for? Or is there role models online that, you know, sometimes can have a negative connotation, but there are positive things that you could could find through that? Because when I was younger, that was my whole life, you know, looking at people online and things like that. Yeah, I think you've raised a really good point. One of the things that I say in the book is you you don't want any role model to be your personal guru. And mm. I think that's where we go wrong, that we think that if we find somebody inspiring in a certain way, we have to buy into absolutely all aspects of, of who they are. Everything, yeah. And nobody's perfect. Yeah. Nobody's infallible. And it's okay if there are I mean, we all have our red lines when it comes to people's social media output and and things that we think, no, that's unforgivable. You know, I'm no longer on board with this person and their message. But I I compare it to a maths problem. And, you know, if you can see someone's workings, but you don't agree with their solution, then they're probably still worth a follow. You know, it's it's important to be challenged sometimes. But in terms of of who we should be following on body image, there's there's a couple of examples I would give you. So um, Jamie Windust is a non-binary campaigner. And the reason that I would suggest them is because people often think that having positive body image is about eschewing everything that the fashion and beauty industry has to offer. Whereas I think it's about taking what those industries have to offer and using it for your agenda. And I I look at Jamie and they're using um, makeup and fashion for fun and creativity and individuality. It's, It's not based on conformity at all. And and I think that's a really important aspect of the conversation that often gets missed. And then you've probably heard of Megan Jane Crabb. She is one of our most famous body positivity campaigners. And the reason that I would recommend her is because she has more than a million followers on Instagram and she takes that responsibility super seriously. You know, she's done her research. She knows about the science when she's giving messages on health. You know, she's gone and she's spoken to, to scientists. And I think when you are a super influencer... You know, so, so many influencers don't do that. They just say whatever they think. At the, yeah, at the time, exactly, you know? exactly. Um, and she shows how to how to do it well. I've I always found it really really daunting when I was younger because you know you look at all of these these people online and things like that. From your um, professional standpoint, talking to these children now, what is what is it like for girls online now with their body image? So one thing that I I try not to do is to speak too specifically about the people that they might be following. Because Mm -hmm. the the rule generally is if I've heard of it, whether it's a term they might be using or a trend, it's already passe, right? By the time it's filtered up to my generation. And I think the most important thing when you're talking to teenagers is to be authentic and to not and to realize that you're not their age and to not try and be down. Like I've, I've mm-hmm. seen speakers in schools try and be down and it's so cringy and I'm like, oh. Um, so I try and talk in, in more broad brushstrokes about the general principles of social media. So I talk about things like algorithms, for example, and being mm-hmm. pushed towards extreme opinions. And, you know, if you take, for example, um, Andrew Tate, you know, it, it 
by the time we'd all heard of him, <laughs> young people were like, like yeah, yeah, you know, we've been following him for ages kind of, kind of thing. So yeah. um, it, it, I can't speak to you about anybody specific because I kind of, I, I, what I'm I'm trying to do is give them the tools to navigate whatever it is that that pops up in, in front of them. Um, but in, in terms of the, the body image trends, what I have seen is the beauty standard become narrower and narrower. So if you take, for example, the the body type, which is, let's call it Kardashian-esque, uh-huh. that is extremely thin with bits stuck on. Yeah. No one naturally has that body type. I'm loving that description. I have to say, yeah. it's going to stay with yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But that's, that's the thing with, with beauty standards is the goalposts always move. So people think that we're born with this innate understanding of what beauty is. That's not the the case at all. There's only one universal beauty paradigm and that's facial symmetry. So everything else we learn from our environment. And it also changes throughout history. So there'll never come a point, particularly as women, but not exclusively, where you go, oh, okay, I'm done. My, my, my body's great. I'll, I'll live the rest of my life because they'll invent something new for us to feel a- apologetic about. And so that's why the message has to be, you know, do, do you, <laughs> you know, do, make your make your beauty rules, do you, but don't chase the beauty standard because you'll be chasing it forever. It's interesting, isn't it? I, there was some research published, I think, by the Centre for Countering Digital Hate, which was looking at how, you were mentioning algorithms and how content is pushed out. And their research kind of... It, it, reinforces again this idea that vulnerable young people are potentially more at risk online because what their research showed was that for things like body image if you had a a a profile which had certain words in its title uh, which suggested health dieting or whatever then they would automatically start to receive a lot more content going down the route potentially of kind of unhealthy you know pro-anorexia for example uh type content so it is it is really concerning and it's Concerning for us, you know, as as adults that have teenage children, mm. <laughs> about what their online experience is, because we don't know, right? We don't we don't get to see into that little little black window that they're that they're looking into while they're sitting on the couch on the other side of the room. And you know, I, to, for research for my book, I spoke to a nutritionist called Pixie Turner, and she used to be, you know, what these like online health influencers. And she realised she had this kind of revelation one day that first of all, it was scientifically very dubious, the messages that they were giving, but also that they were manipulating vulnerable people. So she went off and she got herself a a master's in nutrition and and she now debunks some of the myths that are put out there into the online space about how to be quote unquote healthy. But what you very quickly realize when you speak to genuine experts like Pixie is the rules of health are so not sexy. It's just like, you know, eat your veg, move when you can, get enough sleep, <laughs> drink your water, don't overthink it, you know. And yet there, there are whole multi-billion pound industries that their whole reason for existing is to overcomplicate that message. And it was hard enough for us when we got it via television and, and magazines and, and maybe via the people around us because they'd absorbed it. Now, it, as you say, it's baked into the algorithms. I actually had a question kind of, I think, for both of you, actually, um, as a mum and as someone that's just spent a lot of time with um, younger people. How does it feel to see, I guess, teenagers, younger people just being influenced in general by what's going on online? Because when I, I was literally just thinking, about it, I was like, there were times when I was younger, where I'd literally try and like just starve myself. And that's like, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, what would my mum 
how would you even combat that? How do you talk to your child? How do you make sure that they're safe around what they're taking in, like social media content and things like that? Are you asking me? I was asking both of you, really. Whoever wants to answer first. Jess, do you want to go first? (laughs) Well, I'll go first. So, I mean, yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, as a parent, I brought up the fact that I'm a parent. What is fascinating as a parent is one day your child, who can be very young at the time, suddenly spouts some phrase that they've picked up from TV. In our household, I remember it was my son and it was something to do with dishwasher tabs. I was doing something. He said, why aren't you using the fairy ones? And then he went and actually gave the phrase that was in the advert. And I was like, whoa, you know, he actually thought that was he picked that up from the telly. So this idea of the impact, it's always there, I think, for you as a parent. You do kind of wonder and your kids will, particularly with TikTok, I've noticed um, kids will come out with all kinds of very, I don't know, interesting takes on things and you and my husband started saying you got that from tiktok didn't you <laughs> you know yeah. so i do think so as a parent yeah it's always there and you know and then in terms of professional role i would always be advising people to have all of those conversations but even having a conversation with your kids about what they're doing online it's not the same you know what you're looking to do is really make a connection with young people about their use of technology having a conversation about it doesn't necessarily do anything so how you get in and make that connection um it, it, you know regular regular kind of conversations having fun online all of that usual stuff uh, but then obviously coming into kind of the education space and i was really interested natasha when i was reading up about you before you came on um about your approach in in schools and not just necessarily going and going right everybody sit down we're in assembly you've know, got 200 kids and here's the stuff folks this is what you want to know i've imparted my knowledge into your heads away you go thanks very much. And instead you're running kind of focus groups. You're like, you tell me. And I was like, yeah, that's the way to do it. Right. I think so. I I mean, going back to to Princess's question, I I think the most terrifying thing is the way that people's worldview pivots according to who they trust online. And and I actually have a, a friend who has a teenage son who is obsessed with a certain, um, online influencer, YouTuber, and my friend is pulling her hair out because she's, she said, it wouldn't matter what I told my son about this person. He's always got an answer of, oh, that's the mainstream media. or oh, it's a conspiracy. or oh, they've got a vendetta against him. And, you know, there's some pretty worrying stuff going on with this person, influence of the alt-right, for example. And and she's saying, look, you know, here, here's an article that, that shows how this is alt-right ideology. And, oh, well, yeah, the mainstream media would say that, wouldn't they? Because they're threatened because they're challenging the mainstream. And um, so I think that kind of answers both of your questions insofar as I, I, I know how not to do it, which is, and and this is true, we can all remember being a teenager and being obsessed with something or someone. And the more the adults around us told us not to be, the more temptation was there, the more kind of intriguing it became. And I wonder whether, Princess, do you, because you're a lot closer to having been a teenager than either of us, do you have any idea of what would work for an adult? What what could you say to snap someone out of that? I've actually... Like kind of what Jess says, I think it's about the connections. I think because also as I got older, I think my mum kind of saw what was going on. So she tried to kind of get into my world a little bit. I feel like if you have a nice understanding, like a good enough understanding of what's happening, but then you also have to remember children or young people, they kind of normally go for a rebellious stage. So they kind of want to rebel anyway. So I know sometimes my mum would tell me things 
And I'll tell her to her face, like, yeah, no, you're wrong. But in my head, it would make me think. So I think as a parent, teacher, guardian, you imparting that knowledge and having an understanding, keep giving them that guidance and understanding because they are listening. They're gonna, they are taking it in. But you know, sometimes you just kind of want to act like you know better. So, like just said, I feel like having that connection and keep that persistence is a really good way to to ensure that your child is safe online. Because that's what that's what any you know guardian parent teacher wants. I think though, as um a teacher. I don't really know how they go about things like that, you know, because I think there is sometimes a distance. Although you see your teachers most of the day, you're not, you're not their parent, you know, they're not. So I've, I would always wonder as a teacher, what advice maybe you could give to, to them? Because there's, there is kind of a barrier between them and the, you can only do so much, you know, if you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah. I, I often get that feedback from teachers where they say, oh, we, we've been telling them that for months, but they'll take it from you <laughs> where they won't take it from us. And so I think you're right that there is um, a problem with, and I don't really know why, uh, but there is a, an issue with the relationship there. I think that the best thing that teachers can do actually is work on embedding the skills that young people are going to need in order to, for example, identify misinformation. So um, scientific literacy, for example. So you know how there's... Um, there's a study that you can find online that will prove literally anything you want to believe. <laughs> but you have to look at things like, you know, what was the sample size and who sponsored this study and is it peer reviewed? And, you know, lo loads of things which indicate how reliable the study is. Teaching that as part of the science curriculum is super important because you can take that skill and then you can apply it to anything that you you might be looking at online. So rather than saying, oh, you know, I think this trend is silly or this person is, um, and I suppose criticizing the, the people that they are idolizing, I think it's about, it's more about the skill, the critical thinking skills. This is Interface, a podcast for educators about digital and online life from the Southwest Grid for Learning. We'll be back with more from campaigner and broadcaster Natasha Devon very soon. The Interface podcast is all about keeping children, young people and education communities safe, happy and confident in everything relating to technology and online life. And the other thing to know is that SWGFL, the people behind Interface, have a whole host of support, tools and resources. We also have a number of helplines available. One of these is Posh, the professional's online safety helpline, which is open to any educators and professionals who need support with an online safety issue. Give us a call. Thanks, Jess. And not only that, schools and other organisations can download the Report Harmful Content button to add to their website to support any user over the age of 13 in reporting anything they experience online that they find harmful or worrying. Also, take a look at our 360-degree safe tools. These tools support a comprehensive, whole-school approach to online safety. There's also Project Evolve, an educational toolkit to support digital competency in children and young people. There is a lot available, and it's free. Free is always good, and you're right, Jess, it is a lot. And I appreciate it's a lot for you to take in, listening like this. So don't worry if you've been scrabbling around for a pen or you're not sure where the pause or rewind buttons are. You can find all of this information online at swgfl.org.uk and you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at swgfl underscore official. Also, we've put all the links you need in the show notes for the Interface series that you'll find in your podcast player.
Welcome to the second half of the programme. This is an International Women's Day special of the Interface podcast with me, Jess Macbeth, Princess Lawal, and our special guest for this episode, campaigner and broadcaster, Natasha Devon. We've talked about how influencers are able to kind of put their message out there. But I've actually started thinking about more about how I could use my social media, my space to feel more empowered, more safe and to help other people. And I know that you, um, I think you talked about it in your book as well, about how to use your online space in a positive way and campaign. So how could you start how could you start because I genuinely want to do because I feel like sometimes I don't want to aid to the problem I think sometimes we do so it's like how do you positively use your social media the first thing I would say is I would recommend everybody either reads the book or looks up a podcast that Ashley Dottie Charles has been on. She wrote this book called Outraged and it's so good because it explains to you how there's this whole outrage economy. She says, you know, think of your outrage like money in the bank. You have to spend it wisely. And and Ashley Dottie Charles says, you know, she is a uh, a woman, she is black and she's a lesbian. So she she said, you know, if I was outraged by everything that was offensive to my communities, I'd be outraged all the time and I'd exhaust myself, you know, I'd burn myself out and there would be no point to it. So she, she says, pick the causes that you're passionate about and then try not to add to the outrage economy. Now, um, there's a, a great uh, organization called Hope Not Hate who talk about, using the other uh, person's weaknesses, I suppose, against them. So so say there is a column in a newspaper which is saying really outrageous things about asylum seekers. If you go online, you start talking about this column, you make a TikTok video and, and you go, you know, this person said this, this and this, and this is why it's wrong. You're giving the information, but you're also amplifying your enemy because there's going to be a certain percentage of your audience that's going to go, actually... Maybe they've got a point, you know, and and you're potentially also radicalizing people, even though you're pointing out that it's wrong. But if you, as as Hope Not Hate do, target the advertiser who appears opposite that column and say, do you really want, you know, whoever it is, Sainsbury's, do you really want your burgers appearing alongside this message about asylum seekers? Then the newspaper sit up and pay attention because now you're hitting them where it hurts in, in their pocket. So it's it's about being smart in the way that you campaign and you use your uh, your power as a digital citizen. Because you know um, we live in the attention economy now, which means that young people may not be earning money, but they've got a lot of power. Mm-hmm. I was actually just wondering what was your catalyst to kind of start to campaign? Because I know you do a lot of campaigning for a lot of things, but what kind of got you? in this like space I guess well I um I came up with the idea of going into schools when I was newly recovered from my eating disorders so I was in my late 20s and I wanted to make the mental health conversation a bit more universal because in the 90s it was very much like here's the most extreme story you've ever heard about you know a person who was sectioned and then they were homeless and then they nearly died and now they're fine and there was no information about how they became fine it was just and then they were fine and the end um and as much as that was interesting and and compelling it wasn't particularly useful in terms of applying it to ourselves so that was where the idea of sort of asking teenagers what do you need more information on that's where that came from and then the more I was actually going around schools and speaking to young people and their parents and their teachers, 
the the more I realized that a lot of these problems are structural. Um, they have to do with things like funding. Um, and also, you know, mental health is really closely tied up with misogyny, for example. You know, women have different ha- health outcomes to men. Also stigma, which is why the suicide rate is higher in men. Um, it's also tied up with, with racism and homophobia and transphobia. And so that's what made me into a political animal, really. I realise you can't have an interest in mental health without also having an interest in social justice. So I, thinking about the educators, I guess, you know, what do what do girls need to thrive online? Because I was looking at the, um, the Girl Guiding Survey, it comes out once a year, um, and the one that was in October, and it found that lots of girls don't feel safe online, um, that they experience sexism online, um, that they see the abuse that, that high profile women get <laughs> online. So what, what do we do about all of that? What can educators do to support girls to feel safe and empowered in a space which actually isn't at the moment particularly safe or empowering? So I I think it's about changing the online environment. You know, for example, we're, we're looking at young people's access to pornography, which is a, a huge part of this, huger than people, I think, understand in terms of not only boys' attitude towards girls, but girls' attitudes towards themselves. You know, and I was saying, because I'm quite a pragmatic person, and I was saying, isn't it a shame that you can't direct teenagers to ethical porn sites but like and I couldn't do I couldn't go into a school and do that obviously I can't recommend porn to to, to teenagers but I was saying you know if if you're 16 and you've got the whole internet at your disposal of course you're going to look for something to do with sex you know your curiosity and your lack of experience probably is it makes it inevitable so isn't it a shame you can't direct them towards the good stuff and then you know I've had people who do this for a living, you know, talk to young people about pornography, say 16 is way too late. You know, by that point, they've got no interest in ethical porn. They've already seen stuff that, you know, is is terrifyingly hardcore and their brain has been rewired. So that made me think, well, actually, we do need to to find a way of actually stopping this content from reaching 10, 11, 12 year olds who are showing it to each other in in the playground to gross each other out often at, at first. And um, so I think that's part of it. Also, I'm an ambassador for a charity called Glitch, and they advocate for marginalized voices online. And they make a really good point of people always talk about freedom of speech, you know, and, and just because you're offended doesn't make you right, et cetera, et cetera. But when we talk about freedom of speech, we're always talking about the freedom of people to abuse as opposed to the freedom of somebody to not be abused. And if I, I, and, you know, this has happened to me before when I've been at the center of some kind of social media storm, if I go on Twitter and I'm like, hey, everyone, what does your Tuesday look like? And I get death threats and gendered slurs as a response to that, you know, I'm just not, I'm going to remove myself from that space. So that's a voice then that has been removed from the conversation that's affected my freedom of speech. So Glitch kind of go, we're looking at this the wrong way. We should be making online a a safe place for everybody to, to express themselves. So I think actually it's, it's not teachers job to make it safe for young people because they don't have the power to, to do that. It's bigger than that. But 
they can have honest conversations with young people and and where time and budgets allow bring in experts you know i was talking to somebody who works for a, a charity group that talked to young people about sexting again you know me with my brilliant ideas about how the world should be i was like what if if you were going to send a naked picture of yourself, there was a um, an algorithm that identified there's nudity in the image. And then there was a pop-up that said, there's a 10 minute delay. So if in 10 minutes, you still want to send this image, you can. But in the meantime, here's five questions to ask yourself. And it's stuff like, you know, am I 100% sure the person I'm sending it to won't show it to anyone else? How would I feel if they did? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then the person I was talking to said, yeah, I've talked to young people about that. And they're like, cause I'm not, I didn't invent that idea. It turns out. Um, and they were like, but after 10 minutes, it's the opportunity's gone. Cause I'm sending the image, you know, for the other person's pleasure. It, it's over. So we've got this situation where what girls are actually saying is that they consider that other person's pleasure to be their emergency. So their actions are being dictated by the urgency of of what the other person is doing. I don't know how you fix that, but it's a useful thing to know about what motivates people. Absolutely. Motivations are everything. What you're going online to do mm. and why you're doing it. It actually just reminds me of and when I think about it, I actually think it's very, very sad. I remember there was a um it's still it's still a thing now, but it's not as much as when it first came in. You know the um corsets? Um, I think they were calling them waist trainers. Oh, waist trainers, yeah. My friend, she would come into school. What were we, 16, come into school, wearing a waist for eight hours. She, she was in pain. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, like maybe I should get one. Because like online, it was literally saying, you know, you're going to lose weight, you're going to do that. And I remember, I come from, my family is very medical. So my mum's a nurse, my brother's um, a doctor. And I remember saying to her, oh, I'm, I'm going to get a corset. And my brother was like, princess does nothing it will just squeezes you it, it does nothing and even if you were going to use it you have to use nutrition you have to exercise and I remember thinking like now I, I think like I don't know how I was able to get that influenced by it and I think as, as um, a young um, child or like younger you sometimes just take information as it is you don't question it you think I'm a child these people are adults yeah I trust them why would they lie to me what you're talking about reminds me of something I've heard consistently, actually, when we're discussing different beauty standards, which is teenagers saying, yeah, I know it's not real. I know that's photoshopped or I know it's unrealistic. Doesn't stop me to aspiring to it anyway. And then they talk about, you know, what's wrong with having a goal? What's wrong with wanting to be stronger, faster? You know, they, they frame it in fitness terms rather than in beauty terms. And uh, there's a, a amazing woman who, full disclosure, is my best mate, but she's also um, the, the UK's leading expert on habit change. She's called Sharu Izardi. And um, she talks about how for sustainable habit change to happen, you have to like yourself as you are. You have to like yourself at the beginning and then that will embed healthy habits. So th this idea that feeling good about your body or even feeling neutral about your body is at odds with physical health is is something again it, it's a narrative that was invented by these industries to to make us buy stuff um and i think the solution is because i i feel like it's pivoted from trust everything in i don't know the daily mail which is what you know a boomer might do 
to Gen Z is like, I don't trust anything. <laughs> and that's equally dangerous. To trust nothing is equally dangerous. And I was talking to Mariana Spring, who's the, the specialist disinformation correspondent at the BBC, and she was saying, you have to have your trusted sources, whether it's the NHS website or wh whether it is, uh, you know, the, the the current affairs branch of the BBC, you know, whatever it is, if, if there is a place that you can go where you think this has been checked by experts, there has been certain standards applied to this information, I'm still going to absorb it critically, but I trust this source and I can check the other things I'm hearing against this source. That I think is is super important because, you know, I'm all for, you know, revolution and questioning society. But ultimately, the structures of society were invented for a reason. At the moment, we're using some of them in the wrong way, but they are needed. We can't just have anarchy. You know, I'm not that person. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, just as we're wrapping things up, we've loved having you here, by the way, Natasha. Could you just remind us um, a little bit about your book, the name of it, and what um, the book's about? So it's called Clicks, How to Be Your Best Self Online. It's out on the 18th of May, and it's available to pre-order now. Perfect. Again, again, thank you so much for joining us today. I've learned so much. So thank you for being with us today. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. So great to get those practical tips and insights from Natasha. Now, Jess, let's talk about the three key takeaways. This is always my favourite part. I know. Right? So <laughs> <laughs> what did you take from that conversation? What didn't I take from it, right? There was mountains. Okay, we, we, we always distill it, don't we? Three things. So uh, my number one is very simple, asking, not telling. So thinking about as an educator, we, you, know, you don't need to know everything. You don't need to have, you know, the big PowerPoint and all the notes and I've done all the, you know, all that stuff. Actually, it's about conversations. And that's what really came through for me from the conversation with Natasha was it was so clear. She had all of these insights and it's from running those focus groups that she talked about with young people. And of course, we can do that as educators as well, right? You can just go into class, just open the conversation and see what happens. Uh, get young people to teach us, right? So that that's my number one. Number one. Uh, number one. Okay, number two <laughs> then. What have you got? Okay, so my number two is about the, I think I touched on this a bit earlier, was the role models about who you're following and making sure, you know, that you're kind of following the correct people and things that align with you. But Natasha also said that you can't always look to someone as a personal guru. People do get it wrong. And it's about taking the correct information from those role models and then try applying them um, in your life. So I think that was very, very important. That was really insightful, wasn't it? OK, third one then. So, so Natasha did talk about teaching disinformation in other subjects, right? So the, the fact that you can you can uh, you use your knowledge in other ways, uh, critical, you know, literacy, critical thinking, really important. And we can use that in lots of different subjects. And I think that is really, really important, but not just in terms of disinformation. I think we've got the, the point now where online safety and what I call the impact of digital is so prevalent across our lives that actually it really needs to be integrated across all school subjects would be my my suggestion. So essentially what I would recommend what schools do is do a bit of a mapping exercise. Go and look at your curriculums in all subjects and see where does where does technology come into this, but not just in terms of using tech, but the impact of digital. Um, I'll put a couple of links in the show notes of resources, but for example, a couple of years ago, ChildNet 
uh, provided some resources about how to embed online safety across the curriculum. So ideas like uh, in music lessons, looking at copyright, right? Or if you're in uh, if you're in geography and you're looking at maps, you can start to talk about location and, and what the issues are around about all of that, sharing your location online. In design and technology, you could be looking at persuasive design. In English lessons, you could be using chat GPT to, you know, uh, write an essay for you and then critiquing it in terms of how truthful it is. You know, can you fact check it? What are the sources? All that kind of stuff. So lots there to think about, actually, uh, across the curriculum. That, that's my final one. Uh, there you go, a bit of homework uh, for everybody listening. Uh, so I really enjoyed this episode and I hope it's been useful for everyone too. As always, there are links in the show notes of these episodes to places online where you can read and find out more about what we're talking about. Well, thank you all for listening to Interface. If you've not listened to our earlier podcast, go back and search. We've covered teachers on social media with Bobby Seagull, TikTok, harmful sexual behaviour and so much more. And there's plenty more coming up. New episodes in the feed every month. Please subscribe so episodes are automatically downloaded to your device when they are released. And please recommend Interface to friends and colleagues so they can find us too. We're also on social media at SWGFL underscore official on both Twitter and Instagram. Interface is produced by Kyris Wool with sound design from Joel Cox and original music from Alex Fraser. It's a bespoken media production. Produced by Bespoken Media.